Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And uh, today on the show, I'm going to do something that has become sort of an annual uh, event on this program, conversations with composers whose works are on the bill at the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music. The 2015 season of the festival just opened a couple nights ago, and it runs through August 16th. And uh, as always, they're bringing together some of the best new music or recent music from top contemporary composers. Gives me a chance to uh, speak to some real creative talents in the world of music. And today, I've got three acclaimed young or youngish composers, Hannah Lash, Missy Mazzoli, and uh, Nico Muley. They are a prolific, eclectic, adventurous, smart and playful and challenging, engaging bunch, having created works for orchestra, chamber ensembles, opera, film, ballets, and uh, other settings. Uh, First up, I'm going to be talking to Hannah Lash, who's both a harpist and a composer. She has a brand new work uh, getting its world premiere at the Cabrillo Festival this coming Saturday, August 15th. It is called Eating Flowers. Here's Hannah describing it. The piece begins with this little rhythmic figure, which um, I've given to the pitched percussion plus harp. So it has a very kind of resonant, ringing type of quality to it. And it drives forward um, and develops with different intervals. Um, And then kind of jabbing at that and punctuating it are these chords um, which I've given to the strings in pizzicati. And that's really the impetus for how this piece kind of develops as it goes along and the way that this little rhythmic figure ends up kind of living throughout the piece really dictates a lot of how the form works along with these shifting colors so that when we get the sense of these resonances that build more and more throughout the piece, more and more instruments come so that different combinations um, can emphasize these swells that came from the very beginning mm. and had their, that had their kind of genesis in this little rhythmic figure. You said uh, pitched percussion, and... Um... I think in this case you mean things like uh, marimba and... And vibe, xylophone. You like pitch percussion. I do like pitch percussion. I really do. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that um, as a harpist, in some sense, the pitched percussion for me has a similar type of um, attack and envelope that the harp noise does, only, of course, amplified very much um, and in combination. So it is you know, this type of beautiful kind of ringing sound with a, with a definite attack that I really like. So you are a harpist? I am, yes. A, a kind of rarity, right? There aren't so many harpist composers, you're right. Yeah, it's an unusual combination for sure. I mean, I started composing before I played the harp, so my um, gravitation towards that instrument definitely came from a composerly sense. And harp does feature in this piece, Eating Flowers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it really does. It has a, a pretty um, important role in it. I've listened to only uh, what's called the MIDI version, you know, sort of electronic version that you generate on computer uh, right. in order to get a feel for how it might sound. And I bet you're really good at translating between that bleepy, bloopy, you know, electronic stuff and what an orchestra will really sound like. Yeah, I mean, I try, in fact, not to make a MIDI mock-up until the very, very end if somebody asks for it or... You know, if I absolutely need to check some sort of proportional issue, but I find that I can basically, and I'm better off trusting my inner ear and inner imagination uh-huh. than to rely on the MIDI. What's it like, though, when you finally hear it at, played by an orchestra? Oh, it's fantastic, you know, and you always learn so much from that experience, um, no matter how much music you've written. Um, and I think, you know, I can say certainly that it, my experience now, at the age of 33, after having written several orchestra pieces, is very much different than, say, at 20, when I was at Eastman School of Music and, you know, in an orchestration class, having that more or less first orchestra piece read. You know, that everything is a surprise when you're young and you don't know exactly what you're doing. And you can certainly make these calculations more um, knowingly when you're older, but nevertheless, that sense of magic of hearing the piece come alive, that never dies, and that's really thrilling. How long does it take you to get to a point where you sitting, well, do you sit at a piano or do you sit at a harp when you're, you're composing? Do you? Um, I, mostly, I actually don't use an instrument to compose. Um, there are times if I need to sort of like work out an idea and have it 
have some sort of sense of physicality, there are times when I'll need to sort of improvise at the harp a little bit to get that sense of, like, you know, what is the breath of this idea, something uh-huh. like that. But generally speaking, I'm pretty quiet when I work. I see. So my question was going to be, how long did it take you to get to the point where you could internally, in your mm-hmm. mind's ear, you know, imagine the sound of, a, of an orchestra and all of its components playing mm-hmm. the work that you're putting together? It's a very slow process, and you do it by degrees, of course. And maybe one of the most powerful steps in that process is the idea of imagining things that actually aren't possible and then figuring out what's the best way to get very close to that idea. You know, sometimes something will come into my mind, and I know that in the way that I first heard it, it actually isn't quite achievable, but I try to figure out ways to, uh, I don't know, cheat physical reality almost to make this happen. Right. Um, I mentioned earlier that you like pitched percussion, meaning things like marimba and vibes and xylophones, mm-hmm. uh, because I've been listening to some of your pieces, um, yeah. and I hear that you're using those instruments a lot, and now I understand mm-hmm. you coming from the harp, why you might mm-hmm. gravitate toward that. You also like these these tight rhythmic patterns that you develop throughout pieces. Yeah. I've heard that again and again. I'm wondering if, if we can play an example um, that has been recorded and that is playable on the radio that might mm-hmm. give people a sense of, of some of your range and style. Sure, sure, absolutely. Got a suggestion? Um, how about moth sketches? Oh, it's so funny you picked that because I had that on my little list here of possibilities. Excellent. And I think people will probably hear a direct connection between the title and the sound. It's funny because I um I was listening to your work on my phone uh, yesterday while uh-huh. I was walking around with my earbuds in, and I heard that one, and I was just thinking, hmm, it's kind of fluttery, it's kind of nocturnal, I wonder what that one's about, and I didn't even... Oh, I love that. <laughs> I know, you you really got it, you know, you really got the, fe- the feeling <laughs> of, of moths flying around, I think, a light. Yeah, yeah, oh, excellent, cool. Were you, that's what inspired you, huh? Well, actually, what happened was, initially, I was... I'm going to collaborate with this um, filmmaker who had made a short movie. It was beautiful, this animated movie about a moth. And the collaboration actually never came to fruition, but my own ideas just took flight. I guess no pun intended with that one. (laughs) (laughs) And the piece became its own entity. So it did come from a place, certainly, of kind of imagining a moth and the flight patterns and the shifting light. And that was all very evocative for me. Um, You know... uh I've seen a few reviews of uh, your work, and there's a term that comes up every now and then, sound worlds, or sound right, world, right. Uh, which I thought, you know, that's pretty apropos, because a lot of your pieces that I've heard so far, it's not like there's a melody that organizes the entire piece. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's some other box or container. It's almost like a landscape, uh, mm. or or a world, a feeling, an ambience, uh an image that sort of uh, we travel through, you know, a tablo- mm-hmm. tableau that we, we move through during the course of the piece. Mm-hmm. Is that your intention, or is that just sort of a byproduct of something that you're working I on? Think, yeah, I think that may come very much from the sense of the love of the orchestra and the colors that can come from it. And it's really interesting that you say that, because um, I think beneath that is this kind of steely structure that isn't necessarily often hearable right through the, right off the bat. And I actually kind of like that dichotomy because I feel as though I have a lot of control over the structure and the drama of what's going on, but then I 
like to kind of put over that all of this kind of gorgeous color that allows the surface of the piece to swirl in a way that doesn't necessarily give away the bones. Ah, well, I'm going to ask you to give away the bones, though. What, what, what is the thing that structures your pieces sometimes? So a lot of the time, like, for example, with eating flowers, um, that little rhythmic thing that starts in the vibes and the marimba and the um, harp, yeah. uh, that is a lot of what structures it in the way that the intervals are allowed to transform from there. But then also, if you look at the way that the string pizzicati work, those rhythms actually then become transformed and sometimes augmented rhythms. So, you know, for example, I may either double them or increase them by one-third, something like that, and then they appear in other places. So, for example, that's kind of what dictates the climax of the piece. Mm. So every element of the piece is, you know, there's no extraneous elements. They're all used in a very structural way, but I like to keep them also colorful, again, that you don't necessarily hear them as being structural. Um, Let's listen to another piece. How about um, Hush? Sure. And that's one I can play, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The reason I I picked this one is because it's one that you've written about, uh, and I found a little passage of your own writing. Am I right in, in, in understanding that you're also a poet? Well, I wouldn't call myself a poet. I love to write. I have written my own libretti before, um, and it's something that I really enjoy doing. Um, but no, I wouldn't really consider oh. myself to be a poet. <laughs> okay. That would be a little presumptuous. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a description of this piece that I find pretty interesting, uh, where you say, uh, Hush makes extended use of canon. Maybe you can mm-hmm. give us a little definition for those of us who aren't well-versed sure. in music theory. What's canon? So the idea is that you have a melody um, which you can layer upon itself. So the most um, intuitive and simple example of something of that nature would be around, like three blind mice, and you can sing, you know, a certain amount of it, and then but the second voice enters and the first voice keeps on going, that kind of thing. So it layers upon itself in such a way that it sounds as though there's, you know, both the sense of each voice carrying a melody, but also harmonizing with that melody. So you say you use that device to propel the mm-hmm. form forward, and I'm going to quote again, and to achieve a cumulative texture of sound, a fabric whose thread count thickens as its length increases. There's one point of maximum culmination. This point is followed by a post-traumatic response, secondary mm-hmm. canons, and an unrelated piece of music that enters alien to the piece like scar tissue within a mm, hushed yeah. surface. So let's play this piece where a kind of alien uh, bit of music invades your composition.
Tell us about this uh, idea of um, uh, alien material entering the composition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, in my music, I very rarely quote um, foreign material. Uh, that's something that I just generally don't do. But this was a piece for which I made an exception. And the reason for that was that this lullaby that I used um, in this piece had a very kind of strange and special place in my own psyche, um, and somewhat inexplicable, you know, I'm not quite sure why this lullaby struck me as being not so comforting and beautiful the way that we think of lullabies as being sort of lulling us to sleep. Or perhaps it's, it lulls us to sleep in such a way that feels, um, you know, almost a bit more um, upsetting than it is comforting, the idea that you, you, you should hush, you shouldn't cry, you should go to sleep. Something is being sublimated. Something is being purposely forgotten. And this sense is very powerful for me. So that uh, was kind of the initial idea for the piece, and then building the world around it was kind of my challenge as a composer to kind of figure out what should these little canons be and how can I make little snippets of things that are very beautiful but also layer upon themselves in such a way that we're kind of, we live in a world all of a sudden very disorienting. Um, and it, it might be very beautiful and very light and very pinkly and resonant, but yet at the same time, you know, we never know rhythmically where we are because these canons are generally like the eighth note or the sixteenth note. The sense of beat is um, quite disturbed. So that was how that kind of happened. And then, yes, layering these things upon themselves and, and thickening them in a way that made the climax of the piece feel really inevitable. And I think of that climax as being kind of a trauma in the sense that, you know, there was just too much, too much canon, too much happening, and all of a sudden it exploded and burst, and, and then this little melody appears that kind of um, signals this sense of, um, of, of really deep kind of sadness and, in, and, and trauma. Huh. So this really is a drama playing out. Uh, as this piece develops. And by the way, tell us what this lullaby is, uh, the melody that we hear at this yeah, moment. Yeah, sure. So it's All the Pretty Little Horses, which is an old American lullaby. And, you know, if you listen to all of the verses of this, actually, I think it's part of the first or second verse is, is actually incredibly sad. Um, and How's it go? The, so it goes way down yonder in a meadow. There's a poor little lammy. Butterflies round his eyes, poor thing crying for his mammy. So the sense of this lamb all alone, you know, there and and the butterflies round his eyes. In fact, is sort of a cleaned up version from what it was initially, which was birds and something like birds pecking at his eyes. So the sense that maybe the lamb is even dead or dying, you know, you know, there is born into that lullaby that sense of trauma. Yeah, I wonder what that's about. What it is actually is very sad. It is that. Um, in the time that it was sung in America, it was sung by um, slave women, and they were to take care of the like the, the white people's babies, and they had to basically leave their own babies in order to do this. It's incredibly sad. It's really heartbreaking. Wow. And so that, yeah. that feeling is at the heart of the piece there. That's right. That's right. That sense of sort of abandonment. Wow. Um, can I ask a really general question? What are you reaching for when you compose? What is it you ultimately want to do? That is a very difficult question to answer. I mean, I have composed my whole life, and I feel as though if I didn't compose, I wouldn't be me. I wouldn't. I, I don't know what I would do with myself. I don't know how it exists. Um, so that's my very personal answer. That I have. That's my purpose. I've never had another purpose in life, and I don't know how. I don't know how I would possibly operate without composing music. I was wondering whether you know it's it probably varies from piece to piece, but is it to is it to capture something of a feeling that you have that that's deep inside and maybe inchoate inside of you that you're sort of struggling to bring into full expression? Yes, I suppose there is that, um, and I think then it's beyond it goes beyond that too because it's not really 
you know, it's expressive in an extremely basic level. If it were linguistic in some sense, of course, I would say it as opposed to making music. So it's, it's expressive on the very most elemental level. It expresses something that goes way beyond language, that goes way beyond things that are codifiable in any other sense. Um, I don't know how to answer that question other than to say what makes humans need to talk to one another. Mm. Well, maybe talking isn't the best way of answering that. Maybe the better way is saying what makes us need to do any type of art. I mean, that's some sort of inexplicable kind of beautiful thing that humans do. We make art, we dance, we make music, we draw things. Um, you know, it's, I, I don't know why we do it, but it's, it's beautiful and we have to. <laughs> Sometimes it's, it's to share uh, a private part of ourselves, I think, and uh, listening to you describe that kind of disturbed feeling you had that's mm-hmm. about that lullaby uh, made me think that might be something that drives you, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, as I say, it gets much, much deeper than any other form of expression for me. So I suppose, in that sense, that's what you're saying. I mean, it, it, it expresses something that could never be expressed any other way that goes far deeper than than could ever be put into language. Do you uh, do you play harp often? I do. I play it a lot. I'm, I practice, you know, oftentimes up to six hours a day. I'm really passionate about it, and I perform a lot. I have a performance of my concerto coming up at Carnegie Hall in October, and I'm actually here at Bennington, Vermont, and I'm going to perform a big harp and string quartet piece at the end of the week. And then I'll perform again in Cabrillo in the Music in the Mountains concert on the 13th, the evening of the 13th. And what are you playing? I'm playing my piece Folk Songs, which is scored for piccolo, percussion, and harp. Ah, yes. And, uh, you know, that's another one that was on my list. Maybe we can end our conversation with a sample uh, from the first part of that. And I think, uh, is the is the percussion Doombeck? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a really interesting combination. It's harp, Doombeck, and uh, piccolo. Let's listen to it, and and thanks so much, Hannah. We'll look forward to seeing you in Santa Cruz. Thank you. That was the harpist and composer Hannah Lash. Her new work for orchestra, Eating Flowers, is getting its world premiere at the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music in Santa Cruz next Saturday, August 15th. And you can learn more about that and the entire festival program at cabrillomusic.org. You're listening to The 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and today I'm speaking with some of the great young composers featured at this year's Cabrillo Festival, taking place now in Santa Cruz. And we will be right back with more conversations and music after this. And now let's uh, return to today's 7th Avenue Project. I'm talking to three of the composers whose works are being performed at the 2015 Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music. And uh, next up, uh, a conversation with Missy Mazzoli, who the New Yorker magazine described as, quote, one of the brightest lights to emerge from the pop-tinged post-minimalism furnace that is the Yale School of Music. One of Missy's works is having its West Coast premiere at the Cabrillo Festival, It's inspired by the massive River Rouge car factory in Dearborn, Michigan, outside of Detroit. Let's uh, listen to the opening of the piece, and then we're going to hear from Missy Mazzoli.
I've always loved Detroit. I, I first went there on tour with my band in 2010, and then um, we came back a couple, couple years later, and I went there um, to work with the Detroit Symphony when I got a commission from them. And I just loved the city. I mean, I, I know that there's a has a lot of problems right now. Um, there's no denying that. But I felt that the the energy, the artistic energy, and the landscape was just really fascinating. So when the Detroit Symphony commissioned me to write a piece, I knew I wanted to somehow do something that was about the city of Detroit. And you chose the River Rouge plant, the huge Ford factory. Mm-hmm. That was at one time, I think, the biggest factory in the world. Was it? I didn't know that. Yeah, I think it was that makes sense. back in the 20s. See, I, I went to Wikipedia. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> 100,000 workers. It had its own steel foundry, its own uh, power plant, and, um, you know, of course, was cranking out huge numbers of cars. Why did you pick that? And uh, you must have researched it a bit and gotten to know the factory as it was or is. I did. You know, I did a lot of research about Detroit's history, and um, you know, one thing I noticed was that people always describe the city in these quasi-religious terms. I think that this, the scale of the city and of that factory in particular um, sort of inspires a kind of religious awe, you know. And so people would describe Detroit as you know America's mecca, or and you know describe Henry Ford and he's like using as a sort of god of industry. So um, that to me was really interesting that I, that, I, that this kept happening. I noticed this kind of terminology again and again. Um, and then everything sort of came together when I found a photograph by Charles Sheeler, who um, was an early 20th century photographer who photographed the um, factories in Detroit a lot. And there's one picture of the River Rouge plant where it looks like a giant pipe organ. Um, and I thought, okay, that's my way in musically, you know, just imagining this Detroit as pipe organ. The, the smokestacks are the pipes, right? Yeah. But just, you know, this fantastical image of this factory that was actually a pipe organ, you know, kind of rising out of the ground and dwarfing everything around it was really interesting. And, you know, like what kind of music would that instrument make? So that was my initial artistic impulse um, and sort of was the basis of the piece. You know, it's interesting. In, in the era that Schiedler was taking those photographs and, you know, other people were, were making art based on the great American industrial age, um, factories were heroic. They were the future. They were, you know, one of the grandest things human beings had ever created. But now, you know, a lot of them in America have fallen into disrepair. They've been torn down. Um, they're no longer uh, leading the world. People often identify them with negative stuff, whether they're, you know, they're has-beens or they pollute or they're dehumanizing to work in. Um, mm-hmm. Did you, are you like a throwback in your, <laughs> in your relationship? <laughs> no, you know, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm dealing in really abstract terms. I mean, this is a piece for orchestra, so it's not something that can tell a story in a concrete way. And I, I can't hit all the nuances of, you know, the history of industrial life in America. Um that, that said, you know, I, it, it's something I do embrace sort of all sides of this, this very sort of simple, strange idea. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of grandiose, huge stacked chords in this piece, but there's also, um, you know, a lot of very gritty percussion and piano and the string players plucking their instruments like guitars. So that to me represents sort of the grit um, and the sort of mechanized fervor of the factory. So I'm not shying away from the sort of ugly side. It's not an opportunity for me to provide commentary on um, the state of the factory or the state of Detroit. Um, But, you know, it was really just that initial sort of um, mysterious, sort of fantastical image that inspired it. Yeah, yeah. And believe me, I wasn't trying to, like, uh, pigeonhole you into a position. <laughs> no. No, but you know, a lot of the um, the reviews after the premiere, one of them said that the piece was, was good, but it was too optimistic. Oh, that's <laughs> for interesting. Detroit, which is really funny because the idea that a piece could um, communicate optimism or pessimism, a, a purely abstract piece of music could do that was really interesting to me. My feeling when I listened to the piece the first time was, it does have a heroic, uh, big, classic, you know, grand sort of sound to it. and um, mm-hmm. But then there is this wow factor to those those factories, to those big plants. 
that that mm-hmm. hasn't gone away. You know, whatever the politics are, whatever the socioeconomic picture is, they were still amazing things. So I thought that's what you were maybe capturing in your music. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in the city of Detroit, there are a lot of sections that are decayed and um, kind of in ruins, but there's still a beauty and a grandeur to that. And I know that, you know, there's that phrase ruin porn, which I think is about yes. people like myself from Brooklyn coming to Detroit and saying, wow, this abandoned train station is so gorgeous. When in reality, it's like, you know, this symbol of urban blight <laughs> incarnate. And that's not, you know, um, that's not what I'm saying either. You know, I'm re- I was really looking at it. I wanted to avoid that perspective and look at it from like a more historical, dreamy, abstract perspective. Uh, although I do want to say to some of those Brooklynites, if you love it so much, uh, why don't you move and make more room in Brooklyn? Yeah, well, a lot of people are moving to Detroit. I have a lot of friends who moved to Detroit. Artist friends? Yeah, artist friends. Yeah, because it's no, it's just impossible to live in New York. That's a whole other conversation for a whole other interview. <laughs> we should we should have that one because I'm from uh, industrial Michigan myself, and I fled. You know, mm-hmm. so when I hear about people going back, it's really interesting to me. Uh, a whole new, different kind of influx. Not yeah. not to get those factory jobs like the other wave before, but uh, to uh, make something new out of the ruins, I guess. Well, I think we can play a little bit of this piece. Okay. The climax of the piece, sort of near the end. Mm-hmm. Yep. Missy, do you want to describe what's happening there? This is sort of one of the climactic moments of the piece and maybe the biggest climactic moment of the work. And the string players are all strumming their instruments as if they're playing guitars. So you hear this this sort of guitar-like effect because all the players in the orchestra in the the string section are are playing that way. But just something I've never done in in a piece before, and it was really fun to, to work that way. Is there an Italian term for that technique? You know, I'm sure there is, and I don't know it. (laughs) So what did you write in the score? From like a guitar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd like to uh, give people a sense a little bit more of of your body of work, and this is a short interview, so we can't possibly um, cover it all because you've done such a variety of things. But maybe uh, we could pick another piece. Okay. And I thought I'd pick uh, a few things with your help from your latest album, uh, Vespers for a New Dark Age. Um, once again, we're talking uh, about religious connections here, as we did mm-hmm. in River Rouge. Uh, tell us about this album, and um, maybe we can pick uh, just a few short excerpts. Sure. So this is an album that just came out um, last spring on New Amsterdam Records, and it's a collaboration with my ensemble, Victoire, um, the percussionist Glenn Kochi, who's best known as a drummer from Wilco, but is also an amazing composer um, and new music percussionist in his own right, and then also the electronic producer Lorna Dune. The work is a sort of um, modern, secular take on the Vespers prayer service, the sunset um, prayer service. And instead of the um, traditional religious text, I took poems by um, contemporary poet Matthew Zapruder and uh, use them as the, as the lyrics for the work. Great. So let's uh, play just a couple excerpts, again, to give people the flavor of this long and uh, involved um, secular liturgical <laughs> piece of music.
is it pure coincidence that both the, the pieces we've talked about today, River Rouge, Transfiguration, and uh, Vespers for a New Dark Age, at least were inspired by some religious imagery, some religious um, models? Um, yeah, you know, it's something that fascinates me and provides a lot of inspiration in terms of form um, and content and subject matter. Um, I'm not a, really a religious person, but when I was a kid, you know, I would beg my mom to take me to church all the time because I just loved the ritual of it. And it was sort of the closest thing I had to theater, you know, growing up in rural Pennsylvania. I loved how everyone would sing out of tune, and then, like, someone would stand up and do a solo, and then there'd be, everyone would know when to sit down, and there was a call and response. Um, and all that seemed just really interesting to be a part of. Um I've, you know, looked for ways to sort of bring that into my work. And there's also, there's all this amazing music written for the church. Yeah. And composers have been playing with these religious forms over the centuries. You know, there's the Bernstein Mass, which has um, a collection of texts from all over the place. And then they're not all um, the original Mass texts. Uh, there's, you know, Rachmaninoff's Vespers and the David Lang's Little Match Girl Passion. I mean, these are all works that are sort of um, play with those forms, but taken in a new and interesting direction. Uh, what kind of church was it, may I ask? Yeah, it was a Swedenborgian church. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> in uh, in Bernathen, Pennsylvania. Yep. <gasps> Were your parents Swedenborgians, or however it's pronounced? I mean... Yeah, my my mom was raised in, in the religion. My, my dad was not. Wow. You should describe it for the listeners who don't know that particular sect of Christianity. Um, well, you know, I'm not an expert, and, you know, uh, my relatives are probably cringing right now, just the, the idea that I don't know that much about the religion, actually. Um, but it is based on the teachings of um, the, I think, 17th century prophet Emanuel Swedenborg. And what was so the music that's like? What I'll say. <laughs> well, what about the music? Did they have their own brand of, of music then? You know, I don't exactly remember. I, I don't remember it being anything wildly different from other music that I've heard at other churches. I don't know. It was the only sort of religious experience I had, so I don't have much to compare it to. <laughs> right, right. But it's somewhere in your musical bones, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Missy, you know, we've barely scratched the surface of, of your work, but uh, I hope we get a chance to talk again, and, and I'd love to learn more. Yeah, that would be great. Well, the third and last uh, composer I'm going to be speaking to today is Nico Muley. Nico has written a wide variety of chamber and orchestral music, opera, ballet, film scores, and more. And uh, his orchestral piece, Wish You Were Here, was chosen for this year's Cabrillo Festival. It has a backstory that uh, you might never guess just from listening to it. And uh, Nico and I talked about it along with some of his other music. You composed this in 2007? That's true, yeah. Which makes it kind of an oldie for you, right? It's weird, yeah. I was actually kind of weirded out because it's not not only is it an older piece, it's it's just a strange one. Um, I'm glad that I mean I'm glad they're doing it. I'm, I'm always honored when an old piece has some legs. But yeah, I don't want to say it's not representative. It's it's a it's a perfect kind of snapshot of what I was thinking about at that time. Uh, I've read the description in the program notes, and the description's fascinating. But I think you can clarify a little more. At that time, I was obsessed with, and I'm also still obsessed with, with Colin McPhee's music. And he was a Canadian, um, Canadian composer and ethnomusicologist who was responsible for some of the first kind of transcriptions of Balinese and Javanese uh, gamelan music. And he had this way of incorporating them into his own orchestral works. So there's, there's one in particular called Tabu Tabuhan, which is just this kind of beautiful thing with two pianos, and and it's great. And it's sort of, it's sort of. Um, it's a bit sort of American, you know, motor music, minimalism, but 30 years or, or 50 years before um, the fact. I, I was always interested in him and in the influence that he had, um, not just in American composers, but also with Benjamin Britten, with whom he lived in Brooklyn, actually. Uh-huh. So at the very end of Britten's life, uh, when he was writing a, a Death in Venice, the music that belongs to Taggio, the boy, um, comes directly out of this kind of gamelan scale, which he, he would have heard with Colin McPhee. And in fact, he and McPhee played and recorded um, in the 40s two piano versions of, of Balinese Gamelon. And there's a, there's a good recording on, on iTunes, which I recommend that you get I'm going immediately to. after we hang up. I'm going to. Uh, I imagine McPhee must have known Lou Harrison then. You know, I don't think they overlapped in quite that explicit a way, although because I, I think he was much older. 
Yeah, but you know, Lou Harrison was you know aware of Gamelon. I think going back to the 1940s at least. Yeah, no, it must be. They, there must have been an overlap. I'll, I'll look into that. It's, it's, you know, it's funny. It never occurred to me that would be a connection. Obviously, it's you know, the, the stupidest thing not to, not to have occurred to me. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because I think that Lou Harrison's music is a much more stylized version of it, and McPhee's is a much more like I'm just going to take this uh-huh. version of it. Uh-huh. And it's that and it's that spirit that I, I sort of was trying to get at with with Wish You Were Here because I was really interested in the idea of travel as a form of just acquiring things. And of course the you know the 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 model for this is the is the horrors of colonialism and there's always a wonderful dance about like what ethnomusicology is. Like does it belong explicitly and only to the colonizing influ- like the colonizing energy or are there ways in which it resists that or are there ways in which you know the encounter between musicians is an equal one, or is there a way in which the encounter between musicians, you know, Western musicians and, and non-Westerns of colonized musicians um, can never be equal, and there, all these all these sort of things. And I was thinking also at that at that same time um, about how you know for a lot of people, especially especially American kids, you know, your your sense of how other places look and how other places are um, comes in a lot of cases from cartoons, mm-hmm. and it comes from. You know, if you were if you were a particularly literate kid, it would be kind of sort of Tintin maybe, or or um, you know, if you were or, or Asterix maybe. And if you were watching a lot of TV, it would be like you know the Ducktales episode that was set in Egypt or whatever. That would that would sort of inform. And in a sense, there's this kind of deep, there's this deep like stereotyping of, um, you know, that's that's obviously enormously problematic. But on the other hand, you know, when you think about it, particularly in the case of Hergé, who who drew the, who's the the Tintin things, you know, that obviously Tintin Congo is something that we don't talk about anymore, right? It's not it's not in print. It's not, it's it's shockingly racist, right? And then you also have these moments of deep cultural kind of the an attempt an attempt at an understanding, um, and then you also get the sense of, of Hergé's own sort of mental processes of being one of obsessive obsessiveness and loneliness, and that in, especially in 2007 was something that I was really thinking about as 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 a composer, like what that instinct is to commit to making a lot of noise in silence alone, if that makes sense. You're, you know, when you write for orchestra, you are writing, you are sitting in your house alone making mm. this thing, mm. and um, it will eventually have you know hundreds. You know, hundreds of people in the audience and hundreds of you know a hundred people playing it, but it's essentially this this very um, lonely work. So the, so the piece is is designed as a sort of a sort of tribute to these artists who, in a sense, felt like they didn't have to go to a place to understand it. That it was perfectly fine for you to be sort of chained in in a Disney you know <laughs> Disney animation studio. Um, and that that would that would somehow influence how generations of people think about other countries, um, and all the problems associated with that, and all the work that goes into that, um, and all the sort of lo- the the the, um, the, lo- the loneliness of the artist's task. So that's a that's a really you know sort of complex uh, you know uh, original idea to work out in music, but it results in a piece I think that you describe. Both um, romantic and fanciful gamelan influenced piece, attempting nothing but the most superficial authenticity. So right, well, that's see. Here's here's the thing that always drives me crazy. Right, you know, I, I, I when I was at, at Columbia, I did a lot, a couple of years of sort of intense um, work on on postcolonial theory and on on the analysis of of you know the colonial moment. And did you study the, with uh, part- Did you study with Edward Said? I did, of course. Uh huh. Wow. And and, and um, I did a year with Gayatri Spivak, who's, who is um, another kind of kind of giant in this in this um, uh, in this field. And and you know one of the one of the things that that Said, of course, of course, writes so elegantly about is that you know experts on other places and people who have a who claim to have a key to authenticity tend to be the people who are lying the most. <laughs> right? The closest. The closest. I mean, if you if you read, I mean, I think everyone should, everyone who's alive should read the um, the introduction. To um, covering Islam, which um, in which he talks about kind of how how you know everyone from sort of Tom Brokaw to Judy Miller, what what it means to be an expert in quote unquote the Islamic world. Mm-hmm. What what mm-hmm. what is that? And and you know what can you can you do that without having uh, Arabic, or can you do that with having surface Arabic, or can you do that with having spoken but not written Arabic, or do you need does everyone need to know Farsi, or what what are the what are the you know what are the signs of um, Kind of access and knowledge, and then on the other hand, I mean, I think, and this is something that you see um, in, in more casual forms of of what I, w- what I would say sort of casual racism or casual colonialism. 
um, these questions of when people say, oh, like, is it authentic Thai food? Right. Is it, is it authentic <laughs> Ethiopian food? You think, well, you know, it's happening in Minneapolis, so what does that mean? Like, what, like the question of authenticity is, is not one that, you know, you worry about if you're trying to feed people, right? N- no, not, it's, oh, uh, it's more often a way in which, the, uh, in which the, the person sort of distinguishes themselves because they're closer to the authentic experience right. than the person and they're think, talking to. Right. And I think you see this. You see this a lot in that in that sort of shocking, that sh- shocking thing of like the the sort of slightly lecherous like white guy who learns a lot about Japanese culture, like <laughs> specifically sex type reasons, and and that's like a that's that's kind of a trope that we've all you know we've all dealt with in various in our various educational institutions, um, and you know again there's there's this question of authenticity, and I think one one of the things that's kind of fun that you can say and and a, a bit of a provocation is that you know obviously there is no authentic experience. And, and to talk about it is just is just to lie essentially, and and what's fun is to say okay what is the what is the absolute disnified version of gamelan music? What is the music where I don't even try? Like what's the music where I don't listen to the original? Where I just listen to the thing that Colin McPhee did to it, right? Where I don't pretend to do pitch be- to to you know change the scale. I don't pretend to do any of that stuff. What's the what's the kind of completely um, you know westernized version? So um, what we end up with is a piece that is uh, unapologetically Donald Duck Gamelon, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I wanted to be I wanted it to be the kind of background music, not the background music. I wanted it to be the sort of the sort of action sequence of like the imaginary Ducktales thing that would happen in like Java. Uh. <laughs> like, um, and I feel like, and again, also, you know, P.S., I wrote this thing for the Boston Pops, and we had, like, nine seconds of rehearsal, and it was meant to be, like, a big, fun thing. So, you know, I wasn't about to write, like, a like a <laughs> depressing, like, it's, you know, and I think also for me, what I was trying to do at that time with my music was to write music that on the surface was quite bubbly, and at its heart has this has this kind of deep <laughs> emotional crisis. Right. Which was, which you know, was a, a pretty, a pretty good, a pretty good, um, you know, self-portrait, and and I think and I think also you know what you, what you get with, out of that is it, is the sense that the cartoonist must in some way suffer, you know, and 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 you get the sense that that lo- that lo- the loneliness of that project, um, you know, kind of takes its toll. Um, and if you read if you read biographies biographies of of Hergé, you, you you realize that you know he was he was suffering a great deal, and he was a crazy Belgian racist, and what and was an amazing draftsman, and all these things can coexist in all these things can coexist in um, one person and in one sort of body of work. And in the music, too. So you've got this deeply critical uh, sort of intellectual take on it, but on the other hand, what you produce, and you describe it as twittery and excited, but it's really pleasant. And, you know, some people are just going to listen to it and just enjoy it. I think that's fine. Yeah. yeah. And you don't even have to, I mean, you know, again, with, with all music, it's like you have to take it on... on you have to you have to treat it like how it sounds. I mean, there's no you know I'm not insisting that everyone start you know everyone start thumbing through like you know Partridge Chatterjee books and like Edward Said like at, at the concert. You know, it's like, um, but you know, but that would be nice. But it, but I think you know the, the the goal was to write something that had this in it, but that also is a piece that you can just let the, the literal Boston Pops could actually play. I mean, that's literally what happened. <laughs> 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 you know, like what it's, I feel like, and that that was the challenge for me was what what's the version of that piece that that you know that can that can contain both things, but that you don't have to make a big scene about it. Well, let's uh, hear just a little bit from the opening, let's say, of "Wish You Were Here," just enough to give audiences a foretaste of it uh, and what you mean by uh, romantic and fanciful gamelan influenced music. <laughs>
You know, after hearing this description of the ironic distance between you and the music uh, in this case, should I watch out for being like too gullible when I listen to some of your pieces and just find them to be really touching or moving or, uh, you know, give me a warm feeling inside? Huh. Well, that's very kind of you to say in the first place, but um, I don't know. I'd like to think that the, that the more you listen to it, the sort of sadder it gets. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, I mean, it's, it's true of people also, where it's like you meet them for one second and it's totally fine, and then, and then the more you get to know them, you, you know, that's, I, I think that's what we call depth. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, you know, it's something I'm aware of that, like, music that sounds like mine on the surface can be very easily... You're just like, oh, that was fine. You know, that was that was lovely. Thanks, um, and and not want to take the time to delve further. And but I, you know, I kind of don't care. <laughs> I definitely didn't care in 2007. I'll tell you that much. Um, and but it's but it's an interesting thing. The the, the question between sur- surface and depth, and how much depth do you want to be aware of, and how much do you want to be aware of at that initial moment. Mm-hmm. And I I'll, I can say that I think one of the things I've gotten better at as a composer um, between between 2007 and and you know yesterday afternoon is indicating space behind the surface with a slightly more of an invitation to explore it. And I think that was something that I was not particularly great at um, then. So it's always interesting to me to, um, to revisit pieces from that, from that period of time. You know, I wanted to play an, another piece of yours, and, and maybe um, with the benefit of what you just said about your, your uh, thought process and, um, you know, the sort of multidimensionality of your music. This one, I think, is pretty popular. Uh, it's Etude Number no. 3 with the violist Nadia uh, Sirota. So, Nico, that was just sort of the opening of this etude, which uh, has viola and, I guess, organ mm-hmm. behind it, right? Yep. Um, very curious about that. I mean, I find the, the opening melody to be really charming, you know, lovely. And uh, then it goes into um, this middle part where it, it gets kind of choppy. It gets kind of, I don't know if the right, these are the right words, so you, you, well, there, you take if you, over. If you, if you think them, then they must be right. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to describe it. Well, does it, am I right that it seems to sort of... Um, it disintegrates. Disintegrate, like exactly. And then it comes back together at the end. Right. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that in, in those etudes that I was interested in is that, you know, as etudes are, are sort of technical studies... Yeah. Um, but in that particular one, it's it's taking this kind of jaunty thing and then subjecting it to some processes and and making it making something that seems safe feel slightly dangerous. Right, right. And I find that you know I find it to be a very touching work. Again, maybe I'm just gullible, but it, it, that that process of it falling apart and picking itself up and coming back together and hearing the to me the very human sound of the bowing, you know, as, as she sort of stabs out those. Those little impulses, those gestures, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I think it's really soulful. I don't know. Was am I am I misreading it? No, no, no. I mean, I think all you know. Most I, I think there's always a there's always an element of heart to um, everything that I write, uh, but particularly for Nadia. And it's funny that you should say she's literally drinking a. We're, we're sharing a hotel room now at Tangle, and she's drinking a Pellegrino out of the bottle, um, very glamorously, fifteen feet away from me. <laughs> um, and no, I mean, I think you know, I, I think all of those all of those etudes are designed to be, you know, they're designed to be technical exercises with a heart of gold. Uh huh. Uh huh. 
Um, well, it has been great talking to you. We'll look forward to seeing the performance at the Cabrillo Festival. And uh, really I really appreciate I the time. There. That was the composer Nico Muley. His orchestral work, Wish You Were Here, is on the concert program this coming Saturday, August 15th at the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music in Santa Cruz. The festival is uh, now underway and runs through August 16th with all sorts of concerts and educational events and other happenings. You can find out all about it at cabriomusic.org. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. You can find out all about us at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. So long for now. I'll be back next week.